0: We don't often think of weakness as something positive, do we? Feelings of weakness or helplessness, vulnerability, humiliation. I think all of those feelings can lead us really into sorrow, which um, is something that no one enjoys. Nobody says, I just want to have a sorrowful life, right? Of course not. People say, I just want to have a happy life. I don't think that most people consider being sorrowful when we're you know weak or helpless or vulnerable as something that's beneficial or advantageous. In fact, our culture has taken great measures to try and ensure that there's always a remedy or, or at the very least a distraction readily available for the sorrows that we face in this life. And truthfully, to an extent, I can appreciate that. Right? It's good that we have trained counselors and doctors who understand how to help people struggling through sorrow or loss. It's wonderful to have so many books and other resources at our fingertips today that address these difficult and deeply affecting issues that people have to work through. There are support groups and coping mechanisms and even medications that can help assist hurting people through very difficult times in their lives, and that isn't all bad by any means. And actually, uh, actually, there are times when it can be quite healthy for someone who's mired down in sorrow for an extended period of time, especially to engage in some kind of distraction for a period of time, just to simply give yourself a break from the relentless sense of struggle that can often accompany deep sorrow. I love to ride my motorcycle. It's nice to go out when things are particularly stressful or in a particularly hard time in life and just sort of decompress a little bit. It's a distraction. That's okay. So I don't think anyone is seriously suggesting that we should go looking for times of sorrow and difficulty in our lives, that we should seek out hurtful situations so that we can joyfully suffer for Jesus. And yet there is a reality that we find throughout Scripture to the idea that we are allowed at times in our lives to walk through deep sorrow by God's design for a greater purpose to be achieved in us and often through us. Of course, that still doesn't mean that we look for it or look forward to it. Jesus clearly was not looking forward to the sorrow and pain that he was facing just before his crucifixion as he expressed his own desire to avoid it. when He prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Luke twenty two forty two. 42 we talked about that last week but what it does mean is that when difficulty descends upon us when trouble comes knocking at our door when loss and hurt and pain are thrust upon us there are very often deeply profound transformations that take place within us as we walk through those times of sorrow which in the end bring us much closer to Christ and make us much more like Him than we ever could have been without that experience, which ultimately makes us stronger and enriches our life, even though it may not feel like it at the time. Second Corinthians twelve nine and 10, the Apostle Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, Hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you think about it, that is a really strange thing to say. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Who says that? That is a supremely strange thing to say. If you don't consider Christ's sufferings in light of the benefit that they provide for us. In light of the last part of that verse, for when I am weak, then I'm what? I'm strong. Ah, So there's a benefit. There's a flip side, a very good reason for embracing the sorrow of suffering. And yet if we do not consider the benefit of his suffering, then we cannot possibly understand Paul's statement here. And therein lies the problem for many Christians today. When it comes to sorrow, we don't consider the benefit We don't even give ourselves a chance to consider it. I think often we look to those man-made remedies and distractions all too quickly. And so instead of identifying with Christ in our sorrow, we work as hard and fast as we can to distance ourselves from it without ever considering the true purpose that it may serve. And even still, even still, there are those times when we have no choice when we cannot escape the plan, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow. There are times when we have no choice but to remain in it. And it is in those most difficult seasons of life that we can experience the deepest fellowship with Christ, the most transforming revelation of his word in our lives and a love that we never imagined possible. It's a love that can only come out of the closeness to him that we experience when we're suffering and it is only then that we can begin to understand the benefit of identifying with Christ in his suffering as well as in his victory we we like the victory part but not so much the sorrow part and yet the two cannot be separated first Peter four twelve and 13 Peter says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, the more we become like him, the stronger we are. And the way that we become more like him is by identifying our lives with his. And the way that we identify our lives with his is through our own weakness, which is most often expressed in our lives by way of sorrow and suffering. It was a reality in his life. And it is a reality in his word that is undeniable. Uh, John teaches us in uh, 1 John 2, 6, he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, how did he walk? Isaiah 53, it's a prophetic picture of the Christ. He's described as a man of sorrows. It says he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. This is the life that we're to emulate, according to John. We're to walk in the same way in which he walked. So does that mean we should run out? and start inventing new ways to make ourselves miserable so we can be more like Jesus. No, of course not. No, why? Because this life will bring trouble to our doorstep on its own. In fact, Jesus wants us to walk in joy and victory through all of it, even when we experience seasons of sorrow. I'm simply saying that when sorrow does come, and at times, you know, it comes to all of us, in those times we can be assured that there is greatness There is greatness at work within us. Deeply profound transformation taking place inside of us when we are in these most difficult moments in life, even though it doesn't feel like it. Because he's shaping us. He's strengthening us as we identify with him in and through our sorrows and our suffering. And listen, the deeper the sorrow, the deeper the work that's being done, which means results in us, that are all the more profound. And so as we move through our story today and the gospel according to John, we're picking up where we left off last week. At chapter 11, we find Jesus teaching his disciples through a tremendously difficult time. It's a season of great sorrow. And he shows us the powerful effect that it can have in shaping us more and more into his image and strengthening us in ways that we could never imagine. And, And look, this couldn't be a more timely message because the days that we're living in are not becoming more favorable to the church to christians our culture is on the whole rejecting christ and his gospel at breakneck speed and our ability To be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, as Paul put it, is going to matter more than ever as the sun sets on this Christian era of our nation and the true church will be forced to follow Christ at a greater cost than we have ever witnessed in this country before. The time is now for us to understand and to be able to embrace the sorrows that come when you identify your life with Jesus Christ. So let's turn there together to John chapter 11 and we're going to talk about finding strength in our sorrow. And we'll begin reading with the first four verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, even though we haven't read that account. That's coming next week. But He's mentioning that here in the story. So the sisters, uh, whose brother Lazarus was ill, so Lazarus is sick. So the sisters said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Mary sent word from her home in Bethany to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is gravely ill. And the way they frame the message Seems to be a bit both endearing and somewhat nonchalant, but it's actually significantly more pressing than it appears. It was common in ancient cultures, it still is in some modern cultures, to communicate even urgent messages without a lot of drama. Uh, Their communications were often very polite and even a bit indirect, but when they included the he whom you love part to this message that Lazarus was ill, that was a clear signal that this is serious. Jesus was very close to this entire family, and they were appealing to him to come quickly because their brother Lazarus, the one that Jesus loved, wasn't faring very well, and Jesus was yet uh, a good distance off. At the end of chapter 10, we saw him returning to the place where John had been baptizing, which is also called Bethany, but it's not the same Bethany uh, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. The Bethany where John baptized, where Jesus is in our story right now, was also known as the region of Batanea. It was outside uh, the jurisdiction of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan. It was about 100 miles northeast of Jerusalem. On the other hand, the Bethany where Lazarus is is the modern village of El Azariah. It's on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives on the road toward uh, Jericho. It's a little less than uh, two miles from Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, as a side note, El Azariah is an Arabic place name that literally means place of Lazarus, which I think is cool and not really very surprising that the village would have its name changed to place of Lazarus if a man named Lazarus was actually raised from the dead there, as is recorded in this story. But the point is, Jesus is a long way off from them right now. And Lazarus is fading fast. So his sisters send for Jesus to come because they knew he had healed others in the past. And they believed that if he got there in time, he could heal their brother as well. And when Jesus gets the message, he makes a very interesting comment about Lazarus's condition. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And so not only was there a greater purpose behind the illness, which we'll come back to in a moment, but obviously Jesus already knew what was going to take place, which factors significantly into this story, as we'll see. Let's keep reading verses five and six. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Talk about an unexpected response. Right after Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is seriously ill. This is the same Lazarus that verse verse 3 says is the one whom Jesus loves. And then again in verse 5, John reiterates the fact that Jesus loved this family, including Lazarus, who's dying. And Jesus' response to finding out that this close friend of his, who he obviously loves very much, is suffering and dying. His response is to hang out for two more days where he is, before going to see his friend who is gravely ill. And it's going to take a while to get there. How weird is that, right? What would any of us do if we got word that someone whom we love very much is sick and dying? We'd drop everything that we're doing and go to our friend as fast as possible, right? Certainly, we wouldn't just stay where we are for two days intentionally. And yet it's clear that Jesus is not worried about the outcome that this illness will have on Lazarus. Why? Because he can see the bigger picture. He understands the ultimate purpose of everything, even when we don't. And so he's not rattled at all by this news. He simply reassures his disciples that Lazarus' illness is not the end of the story and it's not the big picture. And yet sometimes when we're experiencing sorrow, deep sorrow, all that we can see is what we're going through in the moment. Right? I know, personally, it can be really very difficult to see past our immediate need any time that we are suffering, and we want God to act right away, just as Mary and Martha are hastening Jesus to act right away on Lazarus's behalf. But there's something bigger than his immediate need going on. And so Jesus doesn't act right away, which to Mary and Martha seems out of character for Jesus. And clearly, as we'll see, they don't immediately understand his delay in coming to them. Let's continue in the story. We'll read verses 7 through 16. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is a metaphor for the time that we're all given by God to do his work. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, this makes me laugh, some of these conversations he had. He said, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Jesus waits until Lazarus dies before deciding to go and see him. And obviously by his statements in verse 4 and verse 11 and verse 15, he has very good reason for waiting. We need to be certain here not to miss this lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. If God doesn't address our own need immediately, even in our deepest sorrow, even when we urgently call for him to meet that need, and he instead waits before we see any measurable response, that does not mean, first of all, that he he does not love us. John makes it crystal clear that Jesus loved Lazarus. Secondly, it does not mean that he won't respond to our need. It may just not come when we want it to. Why? Because he sees the big picture even when we cannot. Okay, our sorrow always serves a purpose. And often that purpose is shrouded in mystery that we cannot understand in the moment. In truth, there are, there are sorrows in this life that we may never understand this side of heaven. Obviously, there are unspeakable tragedies that make no sense to us when a young person dies, when horrible things happen to good people. It is certainly not hard to find suffering on an epic level in parts of the world today. And some of that remains a great mystery to us, and yet that in no way negates the sovereignty and purposeful work of Christ in every single situation that we face in life. In the great wisdom book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it opens with these words, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Everything that goes on down here, there's a time and a season for it. So even though we may not understand, that doesn't mean that God is not in control or that he does not have a purpose in everything, even in our sorrow. Concerning the death of Lazarus, Jesus said in verse four, it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. So there's a purpose that serves the father, that he may be glorified. In verse 11, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So there's a purpose for Christ that he may accomplish the work of the father and be glorified through it. In verse 15, he said, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And so there's a purpose for his disciples, that their faith might be strengthened. You see, this one event, this one terribly troubling and deeply sorrowful event, served the Father, it served the Son, and it served his disciples. There was such great purpose in it, so much good to come out of it, and yet Mary and Martha and many others who were going through it in that moment, they couldn't see any of that because they were hurting, and who wouldn't be? I know there are sorrows that we cannot explain in this life, but I do believe that the vast majority of the time, if you're looking for it, and you look back at the seasons of your life of great sorrow, even if years later you can see the hand of God at work in those most difficult times, you can see the change the growth, the wisdom, the strength that it produces within us. And still, even when we cannot see the purpose in the moment, if we can hold on to the truth that there is a purpose, a purpose that will be revealed in his time and in his way, that truth alone will strengthen you and bolster your resolve to keep your heart and your mind fixed on Christ in those most difficult moments of life because he never... He never allows us to walk through sorrow for no reason at all. There is always a purpose. Notice how Mary and Martha respond to Jesus as he arrives at Bethany, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. You see, Mary and Martha didn't understand. They couldn't see the purpose in this terribly sorrowful death of their brother. It seemed to be needless to the point that they thought Jesus had failed to act because he didn't make it there in time. But we are never without Christ. Even when we don't see him working in our lives. W.M. Statham wrote, it is a common mistake concerning the presence of Christ to say, if thou hadst been here, Christ is always here. No need of a priest to bring them to an altar in the simple meeting place where two or three village laborers are gathered together for prayer in the upper room of the humblest lodging out on the wild melancholy sea in the still room where death seems for the time to be so cruel a king there is Christ. Make not the sister's mistake Lord if thou hadst been here my brother had not died. These sisters that Jesus knew so well and loved him so much made the mistake that we all make when we think that God somehow failed to act, that if he'd just done things differently, we'd somehow be better off. The truth is, it's understandable to feel that way when we don't understand his purposes and we can't see him working. As long as we don't lose our faith that he is working, he's always working according to his purposes and his plan. Mary and Martha didn't understand, but they never lost their faith in Jesus. They were hurting to be sure, but their faith was strong. And you can see it so beautifully in Martha's answer when she asked, uh, when Jesus asked her, do you believe that I am who I say that I am, the resurrection and the life? She replies with what has to be one of the greatest confessions of faith in all of scripture. Yes, Lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god who's coming into the world this was a known messianic expression among the jews at the time it it was derived from some one eighteen twenty six and she rightly applies it here to jesus she knew exactly who it was she was standing before and so even in her greatest moment of sorrow her faith in jesus never wavered it's amazing i'll tell you something These women who followed Jesus in the New Testament, they were as tough as nails and as tender as a lamb. When so many of the men tucked tail and ran, when times got tough, it was the women who stayed by his side. It was the women who took care of his broken body after Joseph of Arimathea laid it in a tomb. It was the women to whom he first revealed himself after the resurrection. It was the women who first proclaimed that he had risen. These women of great faith seemed to understand that even in their sorrow, there was great purpose at work. And so through it all, they kept their hearts open to what he was doing in them, even when they couldn't work out all the details at the time. I'll tell you, as we celebrate Mother's Day, these passages remind me of the mothers in my own life, those who have impacted me personally very profoundly, as I've watched each of them express their own faith through the deepest of sorrows and disappointments. My own mother, my wife, my mother-in-law, these are women who I have personally watched walk through deep sorrow. The loss of a husband, the loss of a father, The loss of a son, the loss of siblings, the loss of parents, the loss of children and miscarriage, the the pain of seeing those you love wander from the faith. These are sorrows that will shake you at your core. And yet, like Martha, I've watched each of them in their own suffering give praise and honor to Jesus Christ through it all, never wavering and never losing hope. In fact, I've watched them comfort others out of their own hurt and sorrow. Why? Because they understand, just as Martha and Mary did, that as we continue to follow Jesus Christ, even in the most difficult of circumstances, our sorrow only lasts for a season. Mary and Martha didn't understand the purpose for Jesus not coming to Lazarus sooner, but even as Martha expressed her great faith in Jesus Christ anyway, he explained to her that all of our sorrow comes to an end, as long as we place our lives and our faith in him. Right after telling her that Lazarus would live again, he said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, there's an end to all of our sorrow. There's an end to all of our suffering, as long as we live in him. In the 30th Psalm, verses two through five, David wrote, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David found strength in the knowledge that our sorrow only lasts for a season, that it always comes to an end, that joy comes in the morning. It may not come the morning that we want it to, but it will surely come. And that should give us strength to endure and to hope, even in the midst of great sorrow, because Jesus Christ is faithful and he is good. Again, David in Psalm 34, 17 through 19, he writes, When the righteous cry for help... The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of some of them. That's not what it says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. Our sorrow only lasts for a season because he hears our cry for help and he delivers us out of all of our trouble, all of our sorrow. And yet there's a key here. We don't want to miss it. Verse 18, when David says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, the phrase to the brokenhearted is the Hebrew word shabar. It means broken to pieces or crushed, even means violently rent. And then later in that same verse, when he refers to the crushed in spirit, those are the Hebrew words dakah and ruach. They describe a contrite disposition or a contrite spirit. The point is, both of these phrases are painting a picture of someone who is greatly humbled before the Lord. You see, when your heart is heavy, when your spirit is weighed down by sorrow and grief, the last thing that we want to do is shake our fist at God because we don't understand why we're going through a season of sorrow. David says the Lord is close to those who are humble before him. You see, Martha didn't understand, but she was humble before the Lord. She went out to meet him. She drew near to him, and her faith in Christ never wavered. It never wandered. This woman is a picture of how we are to respond to Jesus in our own times of sorrow. This is how we should be in our trouble, humble before him, knowing that God is working greatness in us, shaping us into the image of Christ through our most difficult hours, knowing that it is but for a season because he never leaves us in despair. He hears us and he loves us and he delivers us out of every affliction. Let's finish our story for today. This part of it, verses 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but still, uh, was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb uh, to weep there. In the first century Jewish culture, you were required, it didn't matter if you could afford it or not, you were required at a funeral to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional wailing woman. It's the truth. And so whether you wanted it or not, Mary had a procession here following her around as she jumped up and went out of the house. It says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not? He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. So Jesus calls for Mary and she comes out to meet him without hesitation. In fact, she comes very quickly showing her deep respect and desire to honor Jesus, which is confirmed by her reaction as she reaches him, a reaction that is almost identical to Martha's response, with the exception that Mary is even more emotional and humble than Martha as she falls at his feet. But even more compelling than that is Jesus' reaction to the entire scene. John says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And he wept. Now consider for a moment that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. We see that earlier in this chapter and we'll see it again next week later in this story. Jesus knew that he was going to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead long before he got there. And whether Lazarus spent four days in paradise or four days sleeping in the grave, since this was before Jesus' own death and resurrection is certainly up for debate. But either way, he was in a better situation than those left on the earth. For we know that Paul said to live as Christ and to die is gain, Philippians one twenty one. And in the big picture, this was not long before Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23.43. So even if Lazarus was to remain asleep until Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, he was far better off right where he was. Okay, I don't think Jesus was deeply moved and weeping for Lazarus' sake. Again, he was about to bring him back from the grave anyway, and he knew that. So why would you weep for Lazarus? No, I I think he was very clearly moved, deeply moved, John says, because of the sorrow that his friends were suffering in that moment. Why? Because our sorrow always touches our Savior, Jesus was stirred in the depths of himself because of the sorrow that his friends were experiencing. Let's look at how John describes it again. Verse 33, he says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. John doesn't say when he realized Lazarus was dead, he was deeply moved. He doesn't say when Jesus saw the tomb, he wept because he was deeply moved he doesn't make any direct connection between Lazarus's condition and Jesus's own sorrow apart from what it was doing to his friends who were still alive it's all tied to the sorrow of those who were there alive and hurting over the loss of their brother and their friend okay for the believer death is the beginning of life it's not for the sake of those dead in Christ that Christ feels sorrow. It is for those who are hurting in this life here and now. By the way, Jesus' own feelings go far beyond just sadness here. When John says Jesus was deeply moved in verse 33, he uses the Greek word, embrema omohahi. And if you look at the other uh, uses of that same word in the New Testament, you get a much better sense of the complexity of Jesus' sorrow. In Matthew 9.30, the same word is used to mean sternly warned. In Mark 1.43, the same word is used to mean sternly charged. In Mark 14.5, the same word is used to mean scolded. Without exception, it means to feel something very deeply and very strongly, but it is also associated with feelings of anger. If you look at the actual definition, it means to snort with anger or to have indignation. Jesus was filled with sorrow, but he was also angry. Why? Because of the evil of death and the effect that it was having on his friends who were there with him. All right, when we're hurting, when we're full of sorrow, Jesus doesn't merely look at us with a sense of pity as he remains far removed from our circumstance. No, he identifies with us when we're full of sorrow. He is full of sorrow. And he's angry at the enemy. He's angry at sin. He's angry at death because of the effect that it has on those whom he loves. Our sorrow always touches the Savior in the deepest, most profoundly personal ways. They say misery loves company. Well, one thing is for certain. There is no better company than the Savior of the world who embraces us in our sorrow and hurts deeply with us even as he's working within us in that time of sorrow to accomplish something great. No one looks forward to sorrow, to suffering. No one looks forward to feeling weak, feeling helpless, and nor does he expect us to. What he does desire for us, though, is that in those times of great sorrow, when we're feeling weak and vulnerable, to understand that he's with us. He's always with us because our sorrow always touches our Savior. And in that season of sorrow, even though it may not always feel like it, he is achieving a deeply profound transformation through that struggle. In fact, He's making us immeasurably stronger in our weakness. Stronger than what we could ever achieve by our own ability. There's a great purpose for that. It is never meaningless. No, he, he makes himself strong in us in our weakness, in our seasons of sorrow because he's preparing his church for the days to come. 1 Peter 4:16 through 19 Peter says if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God and if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's that's a lot to think about. You see, anyone can shout, God is good when times are good. It's those who can say the same when times are hard that stand to the end. And so just as a prize fighter has to spend countless hours training in the ring, fighting, getting hit, getting hurt, being tested, so that when the true test comes and the real fight begins, he's ready, he's strong, he's conditioned, he's prepared to endure to the end, so too must we learn to stand when we are tested. And that transforming work that happens in us, that strengthening most often takes place in the hard times, in those seasons of sorrow when we're getting hit and having to fight our way through those most difficult days. But the good news is He's with us every single step of the way. Working in us through every difficult moment. Turning every ounce of sorrow into great strength. Let's pray.